CC, growth journeys from emerging ecosystems to global markets. I'm always saying I did all the mistakes with the money of Klarna and learned a lot. Uh, and then I was ready at that time where I met the, my co-founder, Tassim. So we felt that we were ready to come to Turkey and build our own thing. Barbaros is the co-founder and CEO of EZCO, the leading payment management systems platform in Turkey, which was acquired by PayU in 2019 for $165 million. Prior to EZCO, Barbaros had the opportunity to work at companies such as Telecash, First Data, and Klarna. While living in Germany, he saw a serious gap in the Turkish payments market and relocated his entire life simply for the intention of building EZCO. In a couple quick years, he overcame incumbents such as PayPal and took the leading position in the market, ultimately to collaborate and join forces with the company's biggest competitor, PayU. There's lots to be learned from Barbaros's tenacity level-headed focus, and mission-oriented approach. Let's get to it. Hello, Barbaros. It's been a while. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you for the invitation, Rina. Always a pleasure. So anybody who knows anything about the Turkish startup ecosystem or I think has run a small business or a startup in Turkey probably knows about EZCO, as you guys have been the leader in the payment management systems in the country for a while now. But let's talk about your past a little bit. You worked in places like Klarna and Telecash in the past. When did you exactly know you wanted to build EZCO? And did you return to Turkey specifically to build the business? I think if I'm telling a little bit about my background, I started my career back in telecommunications. So the first company I was working for was Telefonica O2. Afterwards, the first company in the payment sector, it was back in 2005, was First State is the leading credit card processor in the world. And uh, back in 2005, I was uh, working there, get in touch with the payments ecosystem, and I fell in love. So this is a, a common way from outside. Payment seems very boring, but the people working in the payment sector they're in love with the sector and most probably they will never leave the, the sector from that part so afterwards back in 2010 i was headhunted by klarna which was at that time of i was the employee number 180 and it was a scale up so we were in that space expanding into the countries germany and netherlands outside of the scandinavian markets so i was the country manager for germany and built the business for klarna back then from scratch with my team and I think what's very interesting at that time was that was the first time I was working for big corporations. And that was the first time where I was working for startup or scale up. And uh, I saw how much impact you can create. So the first mission, what I got from the founders of Klarna was, this is your budget. This is Germany. So build Klarna for Germany. And that was the task, right? And there was no other detailed action point. So you have to build everything by way on. And I'm always saying I did all the mistakes with the money of Klarna and learned a lot. Uh, and then I was ready at that time where I met the, my co-founder, Tassim. So we felt that we were ready to come to Turkey and build our own payment company. How interesting you had the opportunity to like learn from the mistakes and learn the business and how to launch on somebody else's dime. That's like incredible experience. So I remember, I think you built the company, I think it was back in 2013, right? Right, yes. And I think back then you raised initially from local VCs, like two on two ventures, and then from international players such as IFC, Speed Invest, and Vostok. Um, 
I know many founders do believe that for businesses that have the aspirations to scale globally, having an outside VC invest is usually beneficial, both in terms of signaling and the actual support that comes with it. EasyGo has stayed local due to the nature of the business. Um, have you guys still benefited from the mixed nature of your investor base back then? Absolutely. Uh, I think on the initial points, I was in, still in Germany with my co-founder, Tassin. Tassin had uh, his own development house of nine developers, and I was working for Klarna. So we had the idea. And then after it gets a little bit in shape, uh, we pitched the idea because we were very enthusiastic about the idea. So we, we felt like, okay, we need uh, external people who should also look uh, over that. And if we can get them excited too, then we should give it a try. So we pitched the idea directly to business angels with, we knew in our network. Uh, and the first one was Stefan Klestil, who was also uh, the international president of First Data. So I was working with him. And afterwards, so the first round, was 1.4 million US dollars as a seed round, and this was completely international business angels and speed invest. And then with that confirmation, I quit my job at Klarna and Tassis Holt's company here in Germany. And then we moved to Turkey and start to build the business. And then after we felt like, okay, we're coming from Germany, that's a completely new country. And then we looked for a local partner. So 212 was in the second round. They participated in the, in the Series A round. And then uh, afterwards, uh, we get the rounds with IFC and with the other international players. So coming to back to your, to your question, of course, it was very helpful to to have uh, very experienced and also international investors even we were local business because i think what was the tipping and uh, the important point was that almost all of our investors were very experienced in the fintech and payment sector so therefore it was very obvious and very helpful to to have experienced uh, board members who can challenge your strategy and also your product offering and this was important for our success back in the years there that's very interesting because I actually didn't know that you raised in Turkey after you actually had uh, some business angels participate. That's very interesting. So actually, like in the startup life, fundraising usually becomes part of the cycle. You keep raising and raising because you raised, you know, 12 months prior usually, and you're rapidly burning through cash because growth is the name of the game. And raising is essentially the only way businesses can stay in the game for a lot of them. You know, they're far from sustainability or a path to it. But being in that position, it's the toughest position to be raising from, even if you're growing, if you have no path to sustainability. And despite this, you guys raised a sizable amount for what we see in Turkish businesses at the early stage, um, especially with the participation from these later foreign VCs. When did you guys realize that you need to not only raise another two to three million dollars, but you need to raise a sizable amount, but not only that, how did you realize or when did you realize that you could actually do it? Because not many people could do it in Turkey. Yeah. It's very funny because the first round that we, what we raised, the seed round, was very easy. So we convinced Stefan Klestiel, then he invited us to Vienna, and then we get uh, also connect to his network. And there were six, seven uh, also very experienced payment experts. And uh, it was very easy to convince them and to get the first 1.4 million in place. So therefore, in the second round, uh, it was a little bit not that tough because we were in the market. We were a very experienced team. And then we... Uh, 
very quickly the first uh, traction in the market since we had an offering uh, where the need was very, very clear for uh, the problem was very clear and the target group was very clear and our offering solved the problem. So we get very early traction, which was also a sign for the local investors that the team is okay, the market is there, the problem is very uh, proven. So we had product market fit. And then I think in the third round, so where we are getting uh, IFC on board, this was the point because then we started to scale and scaling a payment business is not the easiest thing. So we had to acquire a lot of merchants and we saw also that our first offering was for SME merchants, but then the traction and also the growth of SME merchants was not that high. So we had to adjust our, our offering also for, for key account merchants, uh, merchants and enterprises. So we had to invest a lot in infrastructure and also in the scalability of the product and then also in the sales organization. But then while we are, was focused on different segments of the target groups we had, we unlocked all of the different platforms. So we focused on SMEs, we unlocked them and we had a very clear distribution channels. Then we had the offering to marketplaces, which was also very clear, international merchants. So there was always a big a bunch of merchants uh, with a similar problem, what we addressed, what we solved. And with that growth path and also with the German discipline, what we brought there in kind of yeah, costs, efficiency, and also in the acquisition costs and return of invests, KPIs. VCs, we were talking, they were very impressed. And uh, so raising the rounds until the big biggest round would we have with the 50 million. This was a kind of a low brainer, but I think the biggest challenge what we have was not the business or not uh, the product offering what we have. It was the markets. Turkey as a, as a market was the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was going to be my next question. So this was like a very natural tie-in because I think one of the main risks of being a local audience business is even if you're the category leader, like EasyCo was, um, is the fact that you're tied to the macro conjecture of the region you're based in, regardless of the underlying strength of the business. I think you've experienced that immensely in that last funding round that you alluded to, which was, I think, the most recent one before the exit. I remember you had a couple of term sheets, everything was going really well, and then the coup attempt happened in Turkey. And I think momentarily everything fell apart. But then you guys like revisited that entire thing after a couple of months and like, pulled it together. How did you pick up the conversation and still manage to close afterwards? How did you survive in the meantime? <laughs> yeah, I think this was most probably the toughest part of the journey since uh, we knew we, we were growing. So it was not based on the business numbers or on the momentum what we had. It was definitely the, the timing because we raised the IFC rounds. We were still growing very, very good. So we thought the momentum was there because fintech was also very popular during 2006. It was 2016. And uh, then we were on the road to raise another round, which would be around 20 million US dollars. And I think the only risk point what the VCs told us was weekly because we applied for a payment institution license, which was also a new thing in Turkey. And we didn't obtain that at that time. And at 15th of July, which was the coup attempt day in the morning, we received our uh, payment institution license. So I sent the email to all the investors. The investors uh, responded with the term sheets. So we had five term sheets on the table at the afternoon of 15th of July. And in the evening, then the coup attempt happened. And three of the term sheets was off the table. Uh, one of them were reduced the price. So we were left with only one term sheet, which was, from a terms perspective, acceptable. So we decided then to move on with the Emerging Finance's term sheet. And somehow we're lucky to close the round after six months. Yeah. 
that's a story for the books. I think that's something that you're going to be telling your kids and grandkids in years to come. Um, and I knew that story, the, the rough details, but I kind of wanted the audience to hear about that as well, because, you know, a lot of founders uh, complain. Yeah, it's very funny because this story is also a case study on Harvard Business School now. Oh, oh, I love that. Congrats. I mean, I think that's a huge prestige on its own. And I think it's like a huge testament to your perseverance and the strength of the business and, and you guys as founders having gone through that and like being beaten down. And for anybody who's ever raised, like raising is not easy. Raising from those institutions, that amount, that's not easy. And coming to the very end and for it to all fall apart momentarily because of something that's out of your control, that's so frustrating. But the fact that you turned that around like raised around and then exited the business. Well, you know, that's an amazing story. So kind of like bringing it back to like fintech in general, I think there are a few fintech companies that seem to have like cross-border and multi-region success. Mostly it's like highly local, highly regulated area where the region or even country specific leaders rule the market and it becomes like quite difficult to compete as a latecomer. Do you think the Turkish market provides enough depth to specialize in a fintech vertical and build a scalable enough business? Or if not, like what are some of the areas fintech founders in Turkey could find a competitive edge in in building a globally scalable business instead? Very good question. I think the biggest challenge what you have in the fintech sector is that it's a regulated business, right? So there is different regulation in different countries and also different requirements from local regulators, what you have to fulfill to be able to offer your, your products to customers. So in that specific area, Turkey back in 2013 showed us the opportunity because the regulation of payment institutions were in place. So there were our regulative grounds for us to play ground for us to grow. And I think overall, if you look on, on the fintech sector, a lot of companies are trying to build a global payment solution. But if we're looking closest to, uh, to this, PayPal most probably, and even PayPal is not in place or not the popular or most used payment method in a lot of countries. So they're very strong in the, in the countries where eBay was in place and very, very successful. But in the other countries, you can use PayPal, of course, for the business mostly, but there is always a local uh, or regional uh, payment champion in place. Uh, so if you're talking about Brazil, there's Boletta as a payment method. Uh, in Germany, you have Zofort. In the Scandinavians, you have Klarna. So from that point, uh, payment habits are very local. The regulation is very local. So there is a lot of local players in place. And what we're seeing also in the back is that there is a couple of big aggregators like Adyen who are uh, also able to connect and make local partnerships, offering a global platform to big merchants and global merchants with the partnership of the, of the local players. So therefore, for us, it was very obvious after we saw that the Turkish payments business has the deepness. Uh, we're still growing in the e-commerce, so we Turkish market needed a digital payment player. And what we're actually doing is also very clearly, uh, so we covered the B2B, so the acquiring part of the business, we're offering our solutions to merchants. But at the same time now for the next expansion, what we can offer uh, also to consumers in the payment sector. So this is an expansion not directly in the region, but in the product of we, what we have in the market. Got it. Got it. So I can't imagine, you know, talking to and not talking about the exit, which was a big splash in the Turkish ecosystem in a time when nobody was kind of expecting it. And you guys were growing so rapidly. So, I mean, what I'm more interested in is the path to the exit. And for anybody who doesn't know, Ezico was acquired by Bay. 
PayU in 2019 $465 million, which was publicly announced. And PayU is the leading financial services provider kind of globally operating under the NASPERS network. So you had been competing with PayU in Turkey for a while. It was fierce competition. And instead of like trying to fight you, I guess, like this big company, part of like a giant entity kind of wanted to join forces. Uh, so what I'm kind of curious about is were the acquisition talks always a part of the friendly conversation and banter? Was this discussion approach previously where you shut it down or was this the first time that was kind of brought up? I think it was back three years where the global CEO changed at, at PU. So Laurent joined PU and the regional CEO, Mario, we knew each other also since uh, we're acting in the same markets, uh, we were participating in the same events. And there was always discussions about how you guys are doing. And they were appreciated also a lot, the competition they had with us, uh, because I think having a good competitor in the market is very, very important for both sides. And uh, what we did, it was, I think, back into 2018 in the uh, Money 2020, which is the biggest fair of and uh, conference of payment companies. It was in uh, Amsterdam. So where we were also uh, showing us in the fair. So Laurent came over and said, okay, Barbers, now uh, we, have to, uh, we have to talk seriously. He meant then very clearly, now I think the timing is right. We should join forces. And uh, then we sit together with the chairman of our board and with our M&A team uh, at, the, at the conference and uh, talked about a possible uh, destructure. But then, of course, this was the beginning. And then it took us one and a half years, one year until signing, and then one and a half years until the closing. So it's, it's a very long path. It's not like uh, deciding and going. And there was always also situations and also moments where we thought uh, it could be too early. Then uh, we came back to the table. So there was always a up and down phase and a roller coaster still in the, uh, in the process. So when the process is that long, as you described it, I guess the one thing I wanted to do was for the founders and the line to hear that it's very important to have the communication lines open without looking like you're eager to exit or eager to sell because Ezico was growing. But for cases that take too long, you know, like they're the dream scenarios where somebody comes in and like the deal closes in three months from start to finish, which is very rare. Mostly it's this slow dating process of getting to know each other and then the, you know, like the negotiation, everything takes like ages. So when that happens, in your case, it's a growing company, your figures are changing and growing in the better every day. Does do the terms and the figures that are on the table, do they also change over time? Um, of course, they change. But at the same time, I think this is also okay. For us, it was very important that this would be definitely not the uh, main focus of the whole team. So we had a separate team who were focused on uh, discussing and uh, running the process with the EU. And our management team was still there in place and were uh, still pursuing our plan A, which was grow easygo and also focus on uh, on the action points what we set in place. So I think it's very important also for a founding team. There is a lot of distraction and you have to make sure very clearly and, and this kind of process it takes longer is to open up a, a site project, have a very clear dedicated team for this and then try to keep uh, the distraction out of the business as much as possible. I love that. The fact that only a small portion of the team is focused on this. It's not your main area of attention and, and it's business as usual. I love that separation of focus. Um, so I guess like the one last question I wanted to ask is when you guys entered the market, there were incumbents. 
early in your time, there was PayPal, you know, PayU was there. So, and you're this new business who's, you know, you guys are Turkish, but you've moved back to Turkey. You have funding, good funding per Turkey standards, but you have nothing close to what those two companies can spend. Um, so what were some of the early wins in your history in the beginning that enabled you to scale quickly and compete with the incumbents? I think it's very important if you start a payment business or a fintech business to have a very clear target group uh, and target base uh, where you want to solve the problems. Because if you're looking back in 2013, there were really big companies in Turkey. They're still there, uh, like the marketplaces and other big e-commerce companies who already solved somehow their initial payment problem. So dealing with banks and making the technical integration and everything. So we thought, okay, focusing on them and trying to build a kind of an enterprise sales organization first would be not that easy because you have to convince. So the sales cycle of this sales takes uh, 12 to 18 months. So what we did then after our conversation, we listened to, to the market, we listened to, to the bank partners, we listened to a big portion of SME businesses, what we have in Turkey. So we created a kind of digital onboarding, very efficient uh, KYC processes. And we were the first company who offered digital onboarding onboarding for SMEs. So they came to our website, open up an account, upload all their documents, and then they can, uh, within 24 hours, start to accept payments. So this was our initial offering where we were the enabler of, of payments for SMEs in Turkey. And then, as I said, taking the next step uh, with the listening to the customers, so we get a lot of warm leads from international merchants coming outside of Turkey and want to enter Turkish markets, like companies like Zara Inditex Group, H&M and others. So we saw that there is a clear opportunity because these companies are very used to work with payment service providers and not directly with banks. And they want to have one integration and one settlement files. And they want to have one stop shopping solution for of this kind of markets. So we evolved our, our offering evolved also to that, that we can cover also this international merchants. We created an international sales team, international integration team and support team. And then the next step was, okay, unlocking the marketplaces. And we took it step by step and uh, enriched our offering to the specific target needs of the segment. And then the segment was big enough to that it was worth to invest the product development. And so therefore, we are now actually in that place that we're almost uh, covering all of the big merchants. But at the same time, we have also the very small businesses on, on our platform. And I think there are very few payment companies in the world who have that offering to offer their payment solutions to, to small businesses, to startups, and to big enterprises at the same time with the same platform. So we're very happy about that. In Turkey, Amazon is running at the same platform like the smallest merchant we, we have on the platform. Yeah, that was a very ambitious target. And the fact that it happened and is running so smoothly is, again, a very unique case study. Um, I guess like the last question that I want to ask is about your present and your future. How is it now working for you know like a big corporation that has hierarchy and all of that, like quite different than a startup? Or are you guys really sovereign? And what do you see in your future? Do you think you're going to be building something? If it is, do you think it will be in fintech or is something else? 
Very good question. I think the, the first is easier to answer. I'm used to working in big corporations in, in my past, so it was not completely new. But at the same time, I must say that the payu organization is very flat and uh, the decision ways are very fast. And uh, we still have a kind of an independency. Uh, so therefore, the transition and also the, the first six months, seven months was very smooth and I'm very happy about it. So we have the plan in place uh, what we're executing, the goals are very clear and uh, for us it's still trying to grow easyco and increase the valuation of the company and from that point uh, nothing uh, really changed the only uh, point is that i have a boss now which is also completely okay but uh, the second question is tougher to say because easyco of course is still takes almost the whole uh, attention of my life and it will be so also for the next couple of years so therefore i think after uh, we're integrated with with pu and i can also give and other people can take over some of my responsibilities then i think i will have all the time and also the time to think about the future but uh, for now i'm absolutely focused on growing easyco and pu for turkey what i'm actually doing very clearly is uh, that I'm trying to find out what I will be definitely not for full-time so I will definitely be not a full-time investor um, so this is something what I'm figuring out with my small investments what I'm actually doing but uh, being on the driver's seats and trying to create value this is something what I love and I think I'm good in so it could be in the future that there is a new problem a new purpose and uh, getting the right people together to tackle this this could be a very good uh, scenario and i would love that and most probably i will not do the same thing again yeah i mean i think when you're ready and when you are have the time and mental capacity to think about what you want to do i think you're going to have many many people in the line either wanting to join your team work with you back you support you um so that's a very comfortable position to be in so i admire the fact that you want to do something different to have more impact so every episode we close it off with three quick fire questions i kind of you know they're don't be scared uh so i want to shoot them if you're ready I'm ready. All right. So let's say you're not allowed to work for a year and you can live anywhere you want. Uh, where would you live? Alacete, uh, Izmir. Okay. I think that's where you are right now, too. <laughs> All right. That's good for anybody who doesn't know. It's a very, very nice uh, Aegean coast. You know, the food is great. The weather is great. The sea is great. Why not? So if you had to rename EasyCo, what would you name it? I would do it even simpler. I would call it Easy. Okay. That's, I like that. Okay. If you had to donate your whole net worth into one private company, what company would that be? I think it would be Needs Map, which is in Turkish, a platform where connecting people who need anything as, as a listing site and then donators can go on the platform and yeah, close the, the needs there. I liked the team and most probably I would, I would go for that. Wonderful. Love that answer. Barbara, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. And I'm glad that people on the line had the opportunity to hear about your experiences and history and hoping to talk to you soon. Thank you, Rina. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. It's not very easy to survive a coup attempt and still manage to raise VC funding right after. Seasoned entrepreneurs accept the fact that the entrepreneurial journey will be filled with hardships and that resources will be limited. It's the inexperienced ones that turn these into excuses. It's founders like Bargaros that weather the biggest storms and are the last man standing, reaping the rewards. Thank you for tuning in. 
hoping to catch you at later episodes. To stay in the loop, go to our website, getcc.com, or follow us at getcc'd on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube.